it performs in recessionary environments better than other real estate asset classes. You know, given the needs-driven component, you know, that really caused, in my opinion, a tremendous amount of institutional investment to flood into the space. History has a tendency to repeat itself. And I have a uh, very strong suspicion that our asset class is going to outperform the rest of real estate. But we got to get through some really choppy times in the interim. Really choppy. Welcome to Season 7 of Bridge the Gap, a podcast dedicated to informing, educating, and influencing the future of housing and services for seniors. Powered by sponsors AccuShield, Align, Nick Map Vision, ProCare HR, Hamilton Captel, ServiceMaster, Patriot Angels, The Bridge Group Construction, and Salinity, and produced by Salinity Marketing. Welcome to Bridge the Gap Podcast, the senior living podcast with Josh and Lucas in a special kind of a solo episode. Josh had a conflict. We're here at the Nick Conference in Chicago, Fall Nick. I can't remember the last time we were in Chicago, but I want to welcome back to the show, Aaron Will, Vice Chairman and Co-Head National Seniors Housing at CBRE Capital Markets. Welcome to the show. Glad to do it again. Gosh, when were we here in Chicago last? It had to be... Four or five years ago, at yeah, least. yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like riding a bike, though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I knew where to pick up my badge. I knew how to get down to the river level. We're good to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I really, really enjoyed the last time that you were on the show. I think it was Spring Nick. We hadn't really spent a lot of time together, and I was just really fascinated by the way that you see the marketplace and your insights. And so, very grateful to have you back on the show. You know, off mic, we started to talk about your thoughts on what does 2024 look like? Could you bring some of our listeners maybe up to speed before you hit 2024 and maybe hit a couple of the highlights from 2023? 2023 was uh, kind of a fascinating time in the, in the marketplace in that for the better part of a year, 18 months, right, we saw operational gains, right? It's a juxtaposition uh, between, you know, accretion and census, significant rent growth, labor, you know, normalizing to a large degree. I mean, insurance is still a massive variable in commercial real estate, generally speaking, particular in certain geographies like Florida. But by and large, you know, things started to normalize on the operating side, right? And that's a very good thing for senior housing. All the while, a lot of construction came to a screeching halt, right? right. Which plays into the supply demand imbalance in particular, leading into 2025, 2026, when finally, Alas, the real baby boomer demographic is is uh, I've heard about of, that for a number of years. Of coming of age, we've been talking about it for twenty years. <laughs> All the while, summer twenty two, the capital markets turned on their head, right for senior housing. So it's kind of another gut punch, right? It's very very interesting um, when we look at senior living today and the operating fundamentals in the context of the broader commercial real estate landscape. It's very positive. We're finally a bright light shining star amongst various asset classes. We're starting to see um, multifamily rents go negative in a lot of markets, right? You compare and contrast that to senior housing, and we're paying attention to a lot of the 24 operator budgets that come across on various financings and sales and recap mandates, and there's very few that are projecting less than 5 5 5.5%, some still 7 8 9% for 24. Rate increases? Rate increases, which is terrific, right? And will offset some of that margin erosion, right? You can get back to 25, 30, 35, pick a number depending on the fit and finish and quality of the asset in the market and the acuity mix margin levels, right? So that's all very, very positive. Whereas 
the fundamentals and many other real estate asset classes are heading in the wrong direction. And in particular, some of the ones that were the shining stars during, you know, COVID. Those are good things that we, we see right now. As we, as we head into 24, though, on the capital market side, let's transitioning over to that, um, it's challenged. It's a really, really challenged market. And, and the reason is it's kind of the tail wagging the dog in that the financing markets um, are very, very challenged. The bridge market, you know, for institutional sponsors wanting to buy value assets on the acquisition side, you get 55 or 60% non-recourse debt, you know, for the longest time. Doesn't exist. You know, banks are trying to shed non-conforming loans like they're going out of style, not book them. You have to target 75, 100, 125 lenders to generate one to two term sheets. It's that kind of market and only terrific, you know, sponsors are getting any sort of, you know, financing. So if you think about our industry, you know, again, uniquely, we were the only asset class that didn't have cap rate compression within the resi segments during COVID. How could you when your operating fundamentals are suppressed, right? So now you have tremendous amount of product that is built up. Right, it's sitting there, and people were largely in price discovery mode, in my opinion. You know, in 2021, you know, 22 and 23 for sure. And now they have, you know, out of necessity, really needs to monetize assets. The valuations aren't, you know, great, in particular because a lot of the buyers for senior housing assets today are looking at it um, through a very different prism. In many instances, unlevered. So if you're looking at a mid-teens return unlevered, what does that you know, translate to value? The answer is it's significant degradation in, in, in value relative to a lot of the valuations that people kind of expected. The other thing I would tell you is it's a bifurcated market, okay. right? In that there's everything value add. And the question is, how do you finance it? And you know, so on and so forth. And that's the really, one of the tricky parts today and, and just generally liquidity in the market. I would tell you at the end of last year, there was a lull in, you know, activity and liquidity, right? In order to run a successful auction for anything, for debt, for equity, doesn't matter what it is, you ha- kind of have to have at least 50%, 40-50% market participation. There's a point in time at the end of 22, when we were December, we were like 20 25 percent it's very difficult today we're probably in that 40 50 percent range so the combination of 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 ill liquidity and a lot of the tried and true investors historically that have played a meaningful role in senior housing are now largely in kind of asset management and portfolio management you know they're raising next funds and and so forth so it's on the value add side for those that aren't encumbered with legacy issues for those that um, have dry powder for those that can buy unlever or at least look at it you know, through that lens to be competitive, very interesting time in the value add segment, you know, of our space. I noticed this year I'm a renovator, I'm a value add renovator and uh, 22 is a struggle. I had a huge pipeline and nothing happened. It was really rough. And this year it picked back up and I noticed I started to get newer clients that were primarily developers that repositioned and pivoted into value add because they said we can't build, right? so we're gonna buy value add and that uh, bridged the gap for my business a lot this year in 23. Yep, the bifurcation is then you flip over to the stabilized side, right? There's needs, monetization needs, and which is gonna fuel, precipitate capital markets activity on both sides. If we didn't have cap recompression, 
our operating fundamentals were suppressed. There's a lot of folks that have been sitting on product that now have debt maturities, now have fund maturities, debt paydowns that are significant. I'm not talking about 5% of loan amount. In some instances, they're asking for 25% of loan amount. And then you have this other category of like performing stuff, right? Assets that were a subset of the marketplace that performed well. Maybe an asset that was 96% that dropped to 88% and is now back to 94 5% with comparable margins, close if not at par or better than where they were you know, pre-COVID. And the thing you need to look at there is it's pretty basic to me. What you can pay for something in life is what your underlying debt costs are. Doesn't matter if it's a house, a boat. If you look at underlying treasuries now, right, where they are, the 10 years surpassed 5%, seven years like 5, 10, 5, 15. Most kind of core plus, you know, buyers of stabilized stuff, you know, targeting low teens, mid-teen, depending on like how much meat on the bone is, is there for acquisitions, is using seven-year debt instruments. So if your seven-year interpolated is a 510 and let's just assume it's an agency spread of 200, underlying debt cost is seven plus percent. There are some very special, unique assets out there that would price closer to parity to debt costs that have embedded tremendous compounded cash flow growth potential, right? Where people would look at that and say, it's a seven-year entitlement deal. Nothing's come in the market. It's fabulous owner-operator attached, but that's a pretty small swath of the market. And then there's everything else. Performing B plus, A minus asset, 10, 15 years old, right? And for those assets, what does a buyer need so far as differential, the delta between underlying debt costs and going in yields, right? Because inherently there's operating risk in our business. An operating business attached to real estate. Trades like real estate, I mean, that's a farce. It's really an operating business. The answer is a lot of times minimum 50, but 75, 100, 125 basis point differential in underlying fixed rate debt costs, let's say agency debt, life insurance company, whatever it is, and what I'm willing to pay for something. That's kind of, at least at this moment in time, somewhat of a new normal. We do a lot of work in, in traffic uh, heavily in the active adult segment. Within that rhymes, from a, at least from a cap rate standpoint, given the compression in that segment of the market, trading at parity to multi, and looking at the rent growth there relative to multi, again, a lot of markets where we valued active adult assets, multifamily rents are going negative. I don't think they will in that segment of the market because it's a very, if you program it right, it's a very sticky, you know, resident base that drives a real, you know, sense of purpose from living in the community. And they're not going to move if you pop them four or five percent. They're just not. Again, multifamily rents have gone flat to negative a lot of markets. So how do you rationalize negative leverage? Negative leverage has been a phenomenon in real estate, you know, industrial and multifamily and a lot of spaces, you know, for the last several years. We don't see it happening very much. It's gotta be a very special asset, special market, perception of rent growth in a tough macro climate the next 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, whatever it ends up being. For senior housing, I mean, negative leverage is, is really tough to swallow given the operational you know, risk, despite much better promise so far as rent growth, as far as cash flow growth. You know, cap rates have moved 200 basis points, 250 basis points. Significant. And so those are kind of the two segments of the market as I see it. And you're visiting with people for 
anybody who really understands our space and is entrenched and understands kind of where the puck is going, so to speak, is excited, right? This is a unique moment in time where there's going to be buying opportunities in many instances at a fraction of replacement cost, 2010, 11, 12, where you look up after purchasing something in 15 and say, gosh, it was a heck of a buy. It was this really unique you know, moment in time. I view the marketplace as um, in senior housing today as that. When Nacrief and, and um, Nick you know, started tracking the data and demonstrating to people that it performs in recessionary environments better than other real estate asset classes, you know, given the needs-driven component, you know, that really caused, in my opinion, a tremendous amount of institutional investment to flood into the space. History has a tendency to repeat itself. And I have a uh, very strong suspicion that our asset class is going to outperform the rest of real estate. But we got to get through some really choppy times in the interim. Really choppy. What did developers do in 2024? Pray. <laughs> you look at it, the three or four variables that go into develop. What's my yield on cost? If your underlying debt cost is 7% and you were building a senior housing deal to eight or eight and a half previously, that's tough, right? Because that deal may trade somewhere relative close to where you're building it for, right? And how much spread does somebody need to get comfortable funding a, a development deal? The other thing is a lot of people are like, why develop when we can buy cheaper than developing right now? We were hopeful that construction costs would come down. They haven't appreciably. Really the subs of GCs um, and land sellers are like in these kind of uh, cycles, the last ones to really get the memo. But their workloads are going down. People are pricing more competitively, depending on where commodities prices go. I mean, they could go down you know, somewhat, and that would be helpful to, to develop. Those things translate into levered returns. If you can get construction debt, maybe 50%, 55%, you know, 60 if you hit an absolute home run you know, type leverage levels. And so it's hard to make the numbers work. Now, what we are seeing and working on within our own pipeline of, of stuff on the finance side of the business for ground-up developments are very unique. Gotcha. The commodity... ALMC in a secondary market with 100 units is those deals, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really see them getting done. You know, and I think we're a fairly good bellwether of the, the market with what comes across our desk. And so if somebody has a very unique piece of property in a coastal market or super high barrier to entry market, nothing's coming in and out, got assets within that PMA that are performing really well at $14,000 rents, maybe that project makes sense right? Those are the kind of deals that are making sense. In some instances, we're seeing active adult, you know, deals make sense, right? Because if you can build in the sevens with real numbers, given multi-debt prices, you know, 40 basis points, call it in an agency context, less than senior housing. I mean, if you can get a hundred basis points now a spread or 115, 125, pick a number, you know, that feels pretty good. There are some, some deals within the active adult segment, um, but that's about it. Really high quality deals with, with good rent structures in the 55 plus active adult and really precious senior housing deals that you can't time the capital markets in any cycle perfectly that will stand the test of time. Everything else is really tough. But again, that weighs into the whole supply demand. We're at 84, probably realistically at 84 and a half percent at this point. You know, occupancy, I think we'll be back. You asked about projections in 24. 87 and a half. 
by this time next year, I think it's going to be significant pickup in occupancy. In part, you were speaking to, you posed a question, how does, um, you know, the single family story play into our sector, even though values are down on the single family side, right? If you think about it compared to the GFC, like moving into a product like active adult or independent living, if single family home values then in certain markets were down 50%, you couldn't necessarily rationalize monetizing your home and putting those dollars to work congregate care, right? From social elements and otherwise. And now because of the run up in resi the last few years, even if you are down 10 or 15 or 20% or pick a number relative to where you were, you had a hell of a buildup. Yeah. So there's a lot of built up equity in this particular baby boomer generations, um, you know, home values, right? That's very positive. They're not trading out into extremely high interest rates, right? right? Stuff's still trading in single family. The velocity is not there, but stuff's still trading. People can sell their homes today at better values, much better values than like 2010, 11, you know, timeframe, again, because of the buildup. And so what asset type within the acuity spectrum are you most concerned about? You know, if you look at it as we did during the GFC, you couldn't give away two bedroom IL units. Couldn't give them away during that time frame. Now, I mean, every, if you talk to every operator, every developer you know, they wish they built more two bedrooms in IL and AL and, and everything, right? There's been a significant consumer preference uh, shift to larger units. That, again, plays into um, you know, independent living um, right now, and I think an active adult. And then assisted living and memory care is needs-based. And then sniff and post acute, same thing. That's not going away with nothing being built. So it's it's a it's a really interesting time. Great fundamentals in our sector, really uh, choppy capital markets. People are going to unfortunately have to live with the consequences of where we are in cycle of monetizing assets. It it kind of is what it is. And I don't think, um, in particular, as it relates to the commercial banking system. People say, oh, liquidity is going to be back in 24 and the underlying term SOFR, this is an easy example. I mean, it's not going to go down to 2% overnight, right? Right. We're going to be in a high interest rate environment, but fixed rate underlying, you know, treasuries as well as like term SOFR for a while. And that puts a lot of stress on commercial real estate, you know, books, generally speaking, when debt was free for the better part of you know, 15 years, among other issues um, that commercial banks had. I think I spoke some of these issues on our last podcast, I so I don't want to be repetitive, but it's definitely not a snap your fingers exercise. I think the commercial banking system will definitively be challenged in 2024. So it's going to be a rocky, a rocky road, but we'll come through it as, a, as an industry. We're going to have a run here where we have, I think I used uh, in another interview that, that I gave the word gangbusters activity just for pent up transactional activity that just needs to clear today on both the stabilized as well as the kind of the value, you know, on the other end of the, the risk spectrum, all the while in the next five years or so, it's going to be an amazing run. I love getting your insights uh, just because, like you said, the stuff that comes across your desk. I had the fortunate opportunity just a few weeks ago to discuss with over 70 executive directors where they're at right now. And uh, across the board, the answer was occupancy is finally going up. Right. And we're being able to 
control or better control our labor issues. You know, it's not solved. We're not there, but I'm hearing that across the board. Obviously, that's one company, but these were communities from California to Maine. And it was really good to hear. It's really interesting to hear. And obviously, very interesting to hear this juxtaposition. We know you have a busy schedule, and I super appreciate, despite that I'm a Texas Rangers fan, that you agreed to come back on the on the program. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> Why well, I'm wearing my my Astros socks here just for. That's right. There we go. We got a big game tonight. When this Huge airs, game. when this airs, we'll know what the outcome is. But it's fun to talk about it anyway. You want to wager a bet? <laughs> okay, let's do it. All right. <laughs> Free dinner anywhere in the country. You pick or I pick. Wow. Okay. All right. right. We'll do it. All right. All right. It's documented. Yeah, exactly. Get to spend some time in any case. I love it. I love it. Aaron, thank you so much for spending time with us. Delighted to do it. And for our listeners that listened in and want to know more about the Nick Conference or about Aaron Will's organization, CBRE, we'll connect with that in the show notes. Go to pgtvoice.com, listen to this episode and many more. And thanks for listening to another great episode of Bridge the Gap. Go Strohs. <laughs> thanks for listening to Bridge the Gap podcast with Josh and Lucas. Connect with the BTG Network team and use your voice to influence the industry by connecting with us at btgvoice.com.